Hello and a very warm welcome to another episode of the Get Fit World uh, Tactics podcast. I'm your host Neil Shelat and as always I am delighted to say I have been joined by Varun Vasudevan. How are you Varun? I'm good. Had a nice relaxing week. So well rested and ready to go and excited about today's episode. Yeah, the reason Varun is so upbeat is because we're recording this before Manchester United the match this weekend. So he 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 still got a little bit of happiness left however yes. he's managed to have one and a half days to live my life okay one and a half days nice nice enjoy that and of course we've also got alex barker with us how are you alex i'm i'm doing very good uh i don't have much interesting things to say i haven't watched a lot of football this week uh, actually no i have i've watched more more than usual i usually play football on champions league nights but this week i was like no i want to i want to come inside and actually watch games. And my, my reward was PSG passing the ball around for <laughs> 10 minutes against Dortmund in like oh, the most yeah. boring fashion in the world. Very nice, very nice. Anyway, uh, I hope we talk about a little more interesting topic today. I think it should be, because we will be diving deep into what Aston Villa are doing so far this season and really in general since uh, Unai Emery took over, because they are, well, I mean, I suppose to exceeding anyone's expectations, including the most optimistic Villa fan, because as we record this, this is before this weekend's fixtures uh, kick off, uh, Aston Villa are third in the Premier League, two points behind leaders Liverpool, and just one behind Arsenal. From 16 games, they have 35 points. So it's safe to say that they are looking very, very strong for a European spot at least. Maybe even a Champions League spot. Probably a title race is still uh, maybe a touch too much to ask for. But in any case, they are massively, massively overachieving or exceeding expectations. So it's definitely worth taking a look at what is going on there. Of course, a bit of uh, context as always. Um, I, I suppose I don't really need to tell people about Aston Villa. I imagine most of our listeners know about them. But as far as their recent seasons go, uh, of course, they were in the championship not too long ago, about five years ago. They got pr- promoted at the end of the 2018-19 season. It was really a relegation battle for them. Uh, the season, in fact, it just about survived by one point. Uh, next couple of seasons, uh, lower half of the table, uh, different managers, of course, Dean Smith. Uh, the, the the big one, but uh, or rather the, the one who brought them up, uh, but he was eventually replaced. Steven Gerrard came in, started all right, but didn't really impress. So ultimately, they landed on Unai Emery, and he did really well. Last season, he got them up to seventh back into Europe. Uh, great achievement for them. And of course, they, are, um, they did progress in their uh, UEFA Europa Conference League group. Uh, so they will be playing those knockouts, which Emery is a specialist at, as we will discuss. And of course, he's got them up to third right now. And well, we'll see where we get on. But yeah, I guess it's also worth uh, speaking about Emery a bit because he's not a, a, an unknown, certainly to uh, to England and English Premier League fans. His uh, stint at Arsenal uh, was, well, not exactly great, to say the least, um, for a variety of reasons. But it it... It really, I, I think it really did damage his reputation. And so I, I still think he is not, I, I, I'm not going to say underrated, but I, I'm going to say not rated properly in England. So if, if you look back through his career, um, obviously he was a player at the senior level in Spain. Then he, he started in the lower tiers uh, over there, then got a couple of uh, sort of lower uh, mid-table La Liga jobs. Had a stint uh, in, in Russia for a moment, but then his his sort of real success started uh, with Sevilla, which he managed from 2013 to 2016. Uh, he was clearly a cup specialist with them, specifically in the Europa League. He won it in three editions back to back, which is quite something, especially because what he had to do is win the Europa League, get in the Champions League, finish third, and win the Europa League again. So, quite quite uh, an incredible record there. Then he spent a couple of years at Paris Saint-Germain. Not, uh, not exactly standing out, but, you know, I mean, d- did win a Liga title, which, again, is not a massive achievement, but, I mean, 
he, he obviously gets that on his CV. Then was the big uh, Arsenal job, which, as we say, did go that well, but he did get to Europa League final with them. And then what I would say is his biggest achievement so far uh, is winning the Europa League with Villarreal, their first ever major title. Again, showing his, his qualities as a, a cup specialist and beating Manchester United in the final as well. I'm sure Varun remembers that very well. So, any, any thoughts uh, on Emery Varun? And I'm just going to ignore the United jab again. Uh, but I actually think Emery is underrated. I mean, uh, you were saying you're not sure. I'm pretty sure he's super underrated. I mean, if I look at his track record uh, with Valencia, sixth and then third three times. With Sevilla, fifth two times and then seventh. And Sevilla were not, you know, they were not managed that well. And he still did that. Even his PSG stint was good. I mean, they came first and it was a 93-point season. He broke a few records um, in his time there. Um, And the Arsenal one, I actually think that is the one which a lot of fans of the Premier League look at and say, he's not a great manager. I think he was really hard done at the board level. He did not get his transfers. He wanted different players. He caught different players. It was kind of forced on him. And that's why the first season I thought was okay. They came fifth. The second season really uh, went badly and they came eighth. And I, I don't know. I think it's harsh to put that against him. That and the whole media perception. I mean, he's just a really nice, polite guy. The whole good evening jokes and all. I think he just got a bad perception uh, because of that. But I actually think he's a super manager. I would count him in the top five managers in the Premier League right now. And probably in the top 10 to 12 in Europe. I mean, I, I think he's that good. So yeah, I think he's uh, I think he's underrated. Yeah, fair enough. I, I I would say on the Arsenal stint, obviously, as you said, there were other factors as well. I would give him some blame as well with, regarding his tactical style, but we'll get into that later when we discuss uh, obviously what he's doing at Aston Villa. But I think it's safe to say that you know, unlike Arsenal, his de- he's been supported better with recruitment uh, at Villa, especially this summer. So Alex, why don't you uh, tell us what you've seen from them? in the transfer market. Yeah, I, well, I think it's important to also add the context that um, Emery recruited... Oh, well, Aston Villa have recruited uh, colleagues of Emery. Uh, Monty has arrived, right? And there's a, a, another guy as well. I've sadly forgotten the name of just now. I had it in my head. Um, but there's some, there's some good pieces online about how Villa have basically bought uh, not only Emery's backroom stuff, but put people higher up than him just so he can focus on the coaching and they can supply him with the players that he wants. So the players we can list off from this summer, Musa Diaby, Paolo Torres, Nicolo Zaniolo and Yuri Tielemans. But those are four players that Emery definitely would have had a plan for. And I think when we talk about tactics, it's pretty clear. Like all of these players have had good usage, even if it's taken a bit longer than others, like uh, Yuri Tielemans, um, for example. I think the only the only move there, like that was, I guess, super nailed. I guess more predictable was Torres from Villarreal to where Emery was. But um, yeah, I think the players signed this summer uh, have been interesting. But it's just more the fact of what Villa are like doing off the pitch. And and to, to back myself up, I will now make sure I get the backroom stuff because we're the Get Football Tactics podcast, and we don't. We don't, we, don't, we don't just take Alex saying, oh, I've forgotten who it was. Um, their other guy they brought in, uh, I want to find, is... Actually, you know, come back to me because it's not on transfer yep. marks. We'll, we'll circle back to this in a bit, uh, but let's move on now. And as you say, let's dive into their tactics because the, the key behind their success, as you say, is that they recruited the players which Emery had a clear plan for and had a clear fit in his tactical system. So, as always, let's break it down uh, into how they play out of possession and in possession. And, of course, we'll talk about transitions and stuff. Uh, but, yeah, I think I think the starting point for them is definitely out of possession as well because um, what I like about uh, em- Aston Villa and, you know, Emery sides in general is that uh, they, they defend in a, a bit of a slightly unique fashion in the sense that they always put out a very compact high block. Um, they, their defensive line in particular, very high. They 
tend to start basically on halfway almost. Um, and yeah, it's mostly a 4-4-2. That's his preferred shape and that's what we're seeing uh, at Aston Villa. But uh, the interesting point here is, uh, you know, I think everyone who's familiar with the idea of high defensive lines um, and, and pressing knows that the general rule, so to speak, is that if you are using a high line, a, a very high line, like in the center circle in particular, then you are exp- almost need to uh, press up front so as to ensure that the opposition defenders don't have so much time on the ball that they can exploit the, the space in behind. But, uh, I mean, Villa don't exactly do that in a way that sort of maybe Liverpool used to do when they were crazy intense pressing side or Newcastle do right now. Their block is more... Um, uh, I mean, the, the word I say uses passive, but I only mean that in the sense that they're not proactive. So, so their front two don't generally tend to step out and initiate a press as much as they wait for the opponents to you know play a couple passes and then react accordingly. So I think that that is the the, the, the sort of unique aspect of uh, their, their high block. And then, of course, when they go deep, there's some interesting variations as well, which I think uh, Warren will touch upon. Or Alex has something to say before that. Did, did you find uh, yeah. it? Yeah, I, I found the guy will supplement your tactical analysis with the backroom analysis. Yeah, when, when Emery arrived on his first calls uh, was to a guy uh, called uh, Viga- uh, Vidagani, um, who's a close friend of his. He, he's come in, I think, as the director of football at Villa. And Monchi is the president of football operations, which is very confusing. Um, but yeah, those two, like, as detailed on The Athletic, is a... Uh, like those two take care of like transfer negotiations and like looking for the players. So Emery at Villa just focuses on the tactics, which Ryan is about to expand on. See, I can do a nice segue. Thanks a lot, Alex. And yeah, I mean, I think that is super important. Um, as we have seen so many times in these episodes, getting that structure right is key. Um, but yeah, I mean, backing what you were saying, Neil, I mean, I have two stats for you. In terms of high turnovers, Aston Villa are in the bottom three in the Premier League, along with Luton and Sheffield, uh, which is an indication of they don't press high. But in terms of offsides provoked, they are first in the Premier League and they're like double the team that is second. So that weird dichotomy that you were talking about where their line is super high, uh, their defensive line is super high and they are provoking a lot of offsides, but their line of engagement or line of press or high press is not that intense and they they are not creating turnovers so yeah it's like really weird and you usually don't see that anywhere and what i really find interesting in their shape is um we'll come to their in possession shape out of possession they so actually in both phases you can say they operate in a 442 um but it's not a typical 442 it's something like a 4222 um, because the two wingers are almost like, you know, narrow attacking midfielders. And here's where I, I think how they're really different from a lot of other teams is they use a box to defend. And most teams use a box midfield in possession. I don't think you can say what Aston Villa do in possession is a box midfield. I don't know if you guys would disagree. But I definitely think they use a box midfield to defend. And just like how... In the possession phase, you know, when a Man City or Arsenal or any of the good teams, uh, their box midfield can become a diamond when the left center midfield pushes up a little or the right-sided number 10 drops a little, the box turns into a diamond. Similarly, out of possession, Aston Villa's box turns into a diamond as well. So they do this in a very interesting way. Let's um, take the example. If McGinn is the left winger, Watkins and Diaby are the two strikers. Zaniolo is the right winger and Luis and Kamara are in the pivot. And they'll usually compact the center with that with that box or even, you know, the six players in the center. The front two occupying the center backs, not allowing them passes, uh, easy passes towards the center. And the box for defending the opponent's box for. So one very good example of this is when Manchester City played against them and they were forming their box in possession. Aston Villa were forming their box out of possession to man-mark them. Uh, Not man-mark them, but at least, yeah, they were player for player in the middle of the park. 
So the obvious solution becomes at one point, uh, the opponent starts using the fullback because the fullback is a little free. They uh, let the fullback go a little wide. And here's where someone like McGinn will then press uh, towards a fullback and the other three will adjust, making it a diamond. And then you'll have sort of a, like a wide diamond. And Lewis is the one usually he pushes up and Kamara comes deep like a number six and they immediately form a diamond in midfield. All of this is happening out of possession. And then again, if it switches or it goes towards the central area, they come back and they form a box again. So it's a very unique uh, defending principle. Um, the movements that they have, the box to diamond and back to the box, is almost like how teams have uh, in possession. So I find that uh, really fascinating about their out-of-possession setup. And then um, as they come deeper, they have a few variations. One obvious variation, as you can already imagine, is a 4-4-2. The classic two banks of four and two ahead, and they just settle into that. But then... They keep adding players at the back line depending on the opponent structure. So when they are facing teams that are able to commit a front three, then a, a bank of four is enough. If it becomes a front four, then they sometimes make it a bank of five and they form a five three two. And if they're facing a very strong team, which is committing almost five players in attack, like a three two five shape, like, you know, a typical city would, they're also very willing to form a bank of six and defend in a 6-2-2. So lots of times you will see the two wingers are also on the side and it's almost like a bank of six. So Emery has that in his locker. He's not afraid, afraid to get very pragmatic, very deep and defend like a full bank of six to try and keep the opposition at bay. So very interesting deep block variations. Uh, we haven't seen the very very defensive d block variation this year we saw it a few times last year this year that high press the high press i say loosely because they don't press very high but whatever that really high defensive block and trying to press um, and and you know stifle the opposition and catch ca force them into a long ball and catch them offside that part is working a lot better and they're not having to drop that deep into uh, a d block yep i think of course, you know, the deep block is definitely the plan B. So if the plan is working good, then you obviously see less of it. But yeah, I think that's a great breakdown of what they do. And of course, uh, I think it's worth mentioning as well that uh, as part of the front two, they have, um, in most cases, two very good uh, counter-attacking players. So of course, there's Oli Watkins, almost always, who we'll touch on later, a real threat in behind. And alongside him, you generally have someone like a Musa Diaby or a Leon Bailey, who again... Has, has good speed to threaten in, in behind and also very good on the ball, can take people on and can play that killer pass um, as well. So with, with all of that in mind, you know, they're a, a very solid uh, and a very tough to break down defensive team uh, who can also pose a threat on, on the counter. But of course, that's not their main avenue to score goals unlike, say, like a West Ham who rely heavily on counters to score. Uh, Willa can also make use of uh, possession to a better degree than them. Uh, and so I guess it's worth uh, focusing on how they do that as well. Their, their ultimate um, sort of target structure in possession is, I would say, a variation of a 3 to 5. Uh, and I think you can see that in sort of their uh, their usual lineups. Because if, if, you, if you see, and indeed their score, to be honest, because... The, the, in terms of the right-back options, of course, they do have uh, Matty Cash, but when he's out or, or, or when they're rotating, you'll see someone like an Ezri Konza, for example, uh, start there, who is, you know, by, by trade, a, a centre-back. So what they do is they they use a back three in possession. For, so with Konza tucking in as a full-back who stays deep, and on the opposite side, you generally have Luca Dean, who's good at pushing up and overlapping. Uh, so he he goes forward and forms the front five in the attack, and then of course then that also impacts their winger dynamics, and so that's why you you'll find that on the right they'll play the more typical winger like a Leon Bailey or a Musa Diaby, and, and on the left you'll generally see someone like John McGinn often, who isn't exactly a winger because he has to tuck inside and play in the channel or even you know Jacob Ramsey when he's uh, when he's playing again that sort of player so. You know, those are a couple of basic dynamics that you see uh, in possession. But I think Warren will expand on how they get to this structure and how they build and everything. Yeah, I mean, 
I think you rightly said that though they have a counter threat and if you've been catching highlights, you'll think Watkins on the run, Diaby on the run, that they have um, that counter threat. Um, in their first phase, in their build-up phase, they actually commit a lot of players. Um, as you said, 3-2 is probably how it goes like. But to a large extent, I think in first phase, they're almost in 4-2 four, four form. Like all four defenders are available. The fullbacks are uh, a little wide at times and a little narrow at times. Uh, almost like forming a triangle with the two defensive midfielders. And the two defensive midfielders are proper number sixes. I mean, Kamara and Luis could actually play as lone sixes or holding midfielders for a lot of teams, a lot of good teams. So you have like two sixes. So they, they commit at least these six players and then they're very willing to be patient in possession. Keep rotating it, keep going side to side and look for those uh, those gaps, those triangles to try and progress their way. And the two wingers, um, loosely wingers, let's call them attacking midfielders, they are also very, very um, capable of coming narrow, uh, coming deep. John McGinn, as you said, often plays on the left wing and he's a proper central midfielder. So he's very, very capable to come in those, you know, uh, left-sided eight, left-sided center midfield kind of areas as well. So they do commit a lot of players. They are very patient and it's when they enter the open and half that they're able to switch uh, to a lot more direct nature and that's where you'll start seeing the transitional qualities. And I think they have some really interesting variations like the winger variation itself. Muggin uh, often plays on the left wing and Ollie Watkins often plays as the left-sided striker. One really simple thing they do is Muggin comes inside and if the fullback follows him, Watkins makes a channel run on the left wing and someone like Pau Torres or Luis will just play a long ball or a through ball on the left channel. And then you have runners, Diaby, Luis, Kamara, Zaniolo, whoever. They are crashing the box so that Watkins can make a cutback. If the fullback doesn't follow Magin, then Magin gets the ball. And then he's able to turn and play any of the other three. And because he is now able to get the ball, you know... On the opposite side, a switch is possible. They switch to Zaniolo and then that person is able to go and give the cutback. So it's very interesting dynamics. The constant question or the constant problem they are throwing to the opposition is we have four very fluid movers in the attacking phase. We are committing a 4-2 or a 3-2 in the build-up phase. But then other than that, there are four very fluid movers. It's really hard to tag them as striker, winger, attacking midfielder, anything. Tiabi by trade used to be a right winger, but now he's playing striker. Zaniolo can play um, on the wings. He can also play in the center. McGinn can play on the wings or the center. Watkins is a striker, but he has very good dribbling ability to be able to go wide and, uh, you know, beat, beat a fullback. So, four very fluid attackers. And who are you going to go with? Because if you don't go with one, they'll get the space. Uh, everyone is capable of channel running, everyone is capable of link-up play. So, it actually suits their team a lot, the way they play. And because of these multiple variations, they're often creating very, very high-quality chances. So, that's the reason I think they're one of the best attacking teams in the league. After your usual suspects like City, Liverpool, I think uh, they're there in the top 3-4. So, I think in possession, they're super exciting. Yeah, and something I want to highlight as well, a bit further, is Bibikar Kamara, because we usually save him for the player section we always leave at the end. But Kamara's qualities um, as a player are so central to like what you guys have spoken about tactically that it's worth putting him in here. So a bit of background on Kamara, because this is a player as well that I've been following for years. I think we all have anyway, to be fair. But he originally, originally, originally came through at Marseille as a centre-back and he played there in his first season under Andrish Bursch. Then um, he got moved to... Uh, a uh, number six role. And then Jorge Sampaoli came in and he, at first um, under Sampaoli, he played as like an, an eight and then he got put back in double six in like the back season. So like at Marseille, he had such an education under various managers as well, where it's just, he'd, uh, he was moving between defence and midfield. And fast forward, that's been like the perfect preparation for this Aston Villa role. They, he is so central to how they play. And yes, like Douglas Luizos having a great season, but I think it's their goal against Arsenal. You see Kamara just like float between 
a defensive line and then into like the number eight role to move the ball forward after receiving it. Gara's qualities are just like consistently being good at finding space to receive the ball, moving it on, at receiving it with his back to play as well. And like the way for the play, like they he's often the one to shift into the back line. It, it like when you watch him now, it's quite almost wholesome in a way. Like you see all the things he got put through at Marseille have kind of come out and led to him being so integral. And it, it's, it's funny though, like if you look at his statistics on like FB ref, like you just have a quick glance at his like scouting profile. He looks really mid, like he doesn't seem to tick in any areas. And I think that's a testament to just how much he's shifting um, ta- in, in the tactics between positions and what his role is, that he's never going to get the credit for it on paper. But I think anybody who watches Aston Villa can see they got an absolute steal with him. And of course, when I say footballing education, I am, of course, ignoring uh, the part where Stephen Gerrard had him, which, I mean, I can't... <laughs> I don't. I don't know if you guys have read um, that this stuff come out recently. There's there's a quote again from Athletic where it's like, um, a dressing room source says, "Under Gerard, training was just training, but now it's really hard." <laughs> it's like you might get this. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> Varun, do you have your hand up? No, I just wanted to add into the Kamara praise. Uh, I remember writing a whole article on him. Uh, because Manchester United should have bought him was my argument, and I kept of saying, course. "Yeah," and I kept saying, "We should buy him. We should buy him." And for free, I mean, when when Villa made that happen, I was like, "That is the deal of the year," you know. And I felt the same way about Guimaraes to Newcastle as well. I mean, that was also yeah. just forty three or forty four million. Um, it's just one of those things. I mean, the French league has these kind of you know talents and. Even now, I mean, even now, I'm sure all three of us could just name 10 centre-backs and 10 midfielders in that league. Uh, that would be great for a top club. I think, so, I think I found your account on Twitter because you were like one of the other people banging on about Bubakar Kamara and how like everybody <laughs> should sign him. I think that's how we first met online. Well, well, very possible. A lot of, lot of uh, oh, this is like our uh, when I met you first time kind of sweet moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a lover's past. Um, we, can, we can do it a bit. Like when we get married, we'll have Bubukar Kamara at our wedding. <laughs> it's all thanks to Bubukar Kamara. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people followed me because of Guimara's and Kamara prop, and both of them were steals, and so happy Kamara's doing well. Yeah, but for another team. So, yeah, take what you can get. But anyway, I think let's move on now. We do we do have some points to make about some broader tactical um, themes. And, you know, the thing I mentioned about Emery and maybe the, some of the reasons behind his struggles at Arsenal. But I think we'll save that for after uh, we look at the data because I think that's an uh, important context for that. So, Alex, you've been digging up the data. You've got some great insight uh, in the doc there, including some decimals and some descriptions such as mid. So please do continue. Neil's saying that's because I usually just get the data up in my head and I don't write it down. So I think that's him trying to hint, saying you should write down the data like you have today. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, right. So uh, PP Aston Villa. I think the most eye-catching stat is their PPDA, which is their passes per defensive action. It's like Basically, how many passes a team allows the oppositions have for they make a pressing defensive action. Uh, and Villa are like one of the more passive teams in the league, as we've spoken about. Their, their 13.6 PPDA is literally just above Crystal Palace. So think of Palace in your head. Roy Hodgson. Ooh. Well, Aston Villa, <laughs> they're as passive as them. Ooh. Um, so, but more fun stats, they are fourth in the Premier League for non-penalty expected goals per 90. Um, desperate again to their a- attack. Uh, and as well, their defence is pretty solid, could be better. They're about mid for non-penalty expected goals per 90 against. But I have a feeling that I'll get that, double check that now, I have a feeling live that non-penalty expected goals per shot actually ranks pretty Oh, It's actually the highest in the Premier League. Well, that's not good. Um, well, that, that's a further fun stat. Opponents have the highest quality of chance on average against Aston Villa in the league. Uh, so maybe the defence isn't that great. Do you have any live reaction to that from you two? Because I did have that written down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, I think, I think, I that think it tracks. makes sense. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because, so, 
I, you know, I think that's sort of the the trade off with the highline approach. So you don't you, obviously you can trap people offside and you don't concede a lot. But then if someone breaks your highline, then that's a massive chance that you're giving away. Mm. Um, yep. So in very simple terms, that's the explanation I'd have for that. But I think that's a trade off which they know they're making, and as long as they play this way with highline, no pro, not much of a proactive press. Uh, I think you can continue to see this. Tottenham beat Chelsea. Got it. I understand. Okay. <laughs> uh, the final stats just to list off there. Sit for the lead for crosses, which I think lines up as well against them when they play against deeper teams. I think they could still have a habit of being stuck at wide and crossing it in. Uh, they certainly did when they are playing Matty Cash more often. Um, and uh, But in terms of in front of goal, they are slightly outperforming their non-players expected goals. It's not terrifyingly high. It's only by a couple. Um, but their their own average of uh, quality of chances are pretty high too, which again, that might come down to kind of what we just spoke about, like counter-attacking against big teams. They always look to sit back against big six, and but they're not going to create many chances, but they're always going to be of higher quality. So I'll set the background. Neil, why didn't you go off? I just had one more thing to add. Um, the three games in which they have... An XGA of 3.3, 2.5 and 2.3 are Newcastle United, Liverpool and Tottenham. And in all three, they had very low possession as well. 37, 38, 42, it was like that. So just coming back to that point, you know, those three, four games in which their offside trap is, it just doesn't work. And teams like Newcastle, Liverpool, etc. can play behind and they have the runners and the power for it. And they don't allow, you know, Villa to also dominate possession. Those are the games where they've defensively they've been poor and I think that's dragging the average down because other than that there's a lot of lot of good games defensively for Villa. In those games as well actually this will be a fun point to highlight. Um early in the season they had a legitimate excuse to be worse than they they can be. Uh more than any other team. So are you guys aware of what happened with the their their kits? Oh yeah the whole the I don't know this Castor or who but they were basically not very good kits. Yeah. And- Okay, it was, yeah, so Castor, I will tell you, Varun, and um, oh. I, will report, I will report it uh, as legally, fairly as I can um, without the articles in front of me. Uh, basically, their kits from Castor this season, um, they, they're they not very... They, they, they're basically, when it rains... They're they get, bad. No, when it <laughs> rains, they get very wet and heavy. Um, like, so they get this like, wet look thing. So it makes the kits less comfortable to play in, and it means like Villa have to change their shirts more often during games. And uh, like you could see it in the first game of the season, like it was ridiculous as the Villa players just like thirty minutes in, just like look absolutely drenched carrying this carrying around a, a shirt which you imagine is very heavy, um, and it's soaked in water. Uh, you know and, which uh, other team had a kit problem this season at the start? Was it Wolves? Uh, no, it was Manchester United. Uh, Obviously, <laughs> their kit problem was everything was too tight. Uh, the players were complaining that the socks, especially, were too tight and marks were being left on their foot. So they are now using their training socks to play the official matches. And Andre and Anna couldn't even get a long sleeve shirt either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, that's the reason United yeah. are doing that. That's the that's yeah. real. I think we need to. That's you know, the real United podcast um, yeah. and just put this just clip tight, out. Tight socks. <laughs> that's all. Two um, words. Put it. Put it out. Tight socks. Y- yeah, more or less saw Villa, uh, like in those games where I spoke about, particularly against Newcastle, high XG, like they had a legitimate excuse for being terrible that day. Yep, that's fair. But also, I think this is a good transition for the point which I was going to make, which is the general issue slash weakness uh, that Unai Emery teams face. So what we've talked about here, they have a great compact block, tough to break down, really hard to score against, can hurt you in transition or with settled possession. All of that is very nice. But the trouble is, when they come up against a low-block team themselves who don't like possession, they... So, if if you remember our Nice episode, uh, and also if you've generally seen the discourse around uh, Roberto Zerbi's Brighton and their weakness against teams don't press, the, the, the basic sort of underlying point is that these are all so to speak reactive teams who do very well when uh, their their opponents take a proactive approach basically so like with Brighton anyone who tries to press them is getting played through and cut open and everything but the moment Brighton have to do something 
the moment they face a low block which they have to break down that's when they start to struggle and it's it's sort of similar with Emery Dean because he's he's like his setups are amazing against uh, like that, that's why he's a cup cup expert basically because when he comes up against these big teams who he knows not just that they will play in a certain way but he knows exactly how they will play like down to the tactical details he will set up a great game plan uh, and know exactly what to do so you know that's why you see those back to back wins against manchester city and arsenal really really impressive results and I, i guess showing the peak of what emery can do because he knew how those teams would play he knew they would dominate possession he knew the structures and shapes and tactics they would use and so he set his side up to beat them and they beat them but the moment they they come up against uh, a side which maybe he's he's not not even not so sure of but decide that that sort of gives them the impetus and asks them to you know either take possession and break them down uh, or or even presses them really in in villa's case because they're not sort of the build up uh, like a exceptional build up side like brighton he'll be in trouble so i i guess a great example uh, is obviously before these two results uh, arsenal and manchester city they drew with bournemouth and even in midweek obviously it was a rotated side and everything but they drew with uh, zrinski mostar uh, the bosnian champions who as good as they are you expect a premier league side to make light work of them uh, so you know this is i think the general uh, weakness uh, that um, Emery's teams have we've seen this throughout his career I think uh, f- even at Villarreal uh, and you know that's that's always great in the cups uh, won those Europa leagues and everything not always so good in the leagues I think that was the main issue at Arsenal because for a te- for a club like Arsenal uh, who want to sort of do- like impose themselves on the game basically right so they want to play their way as opposed to react to the way the opponents play and when emery is given charge of sides like these this basically goes against how he works or what what his sort of what brings out the best from him so that's why when he is at a side like a sevilla a villarreal an aston villa who as a club as a fan base are all right with watching their side take up a more reactive approach as long as it gets them their when it gets their results and of course they play very good football that that's that's not a question but as long as he doesn't have to impose his team on the game first uh that that's when he really excels and when it's the other way around he starts to struggle so you know when you look at the data when you see uh aston villa are you know whatever top 5 or top 6 for expected goal difference for example they're a really tough one to assess just that way because if they'll play a manchester city they might you know beat them but then if they come against an everton you know they might struggle so I think that is the the limitation that we see uh, in Emery throughout his career. It doesn't make him a bad manager. Obviously, he can do a great job with Villa, as we see here. But I think that's the reason why big teams shouldn't go for him. But I think Varun has some thoughts on that. So, mm, I wouldn't entirely disagree. I think you're right, and I think the next evolution would be to. perfect that high press um i do think emery is a little um reluctant to just incorporate a very very high intense press plus a very high intense line as well that would start going in the top team range because i do think his possession principles are pretty good in build up they're good they play a high line but i think that high press is something that he can master and i don't think it's beyond him we saw glimpses of it in previous tens but yes he's never committed to it properly and i actually think the deserby brighton similarities that you brought out um, are true in many ways even the way they build up that four to build up forming triangles keep being patient and then using lot of those wall passes or bounce passes to get the midfielders facing forward into the attacking half and then suddenly becoming expansive and transition like so that whole idea of how to progress that also is very similar to bright and even the formation if you just forget about wingers and strikers for a moment both teams seem like a 4-2-4 with a much clearer 4-2 uh, committed in build up uh, sometimes 3-2 if the left back uh, in Uh, Estupinan or uh, Digne uh, has license to bomb forward, 
and the front four are very fluid and keep swapping between wide and half space and central areas depending on where the space originates. Obviously, Brighton has two proper wingers and two strikers, but the strikers almost drop like uh, midfielders at times. And will I have two wingers and two strikers and the wingers drop as midfielders at times? But barring that, I also feel they were very similar in, in that sense. But yeah, I totally agree with you on... This might be the one reason why someone says um, when I am shouldn't replace Pep Guardiola at Manchester City or replace Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool. This, if this is the justification given for that, it will probably hold up. So I agree with you. Yeah, and to finally, I guess you know, round off my point. So uh, a bit of a sort of a stat for you. So from the 30th September. Today, as we record this, before the weekend's game against Brentford, where I think they might struggle, actually. Uh, or not struggle, but not have the best of games. Uh, Will have played 15 games. So, their last 15 games. one eleven, drew 3, including Bournemouth and Zirinsky that I mentioned, and lost 1. Any guesses, or do you remember uh, who that loss was against? It was in the Premier League. I'll, I'll give you that hint. So, one of the Premier League teams. Anyone? No one wants to guess? After you, Farron. Uh, give me a second. Mm-mm-mm. It's going to be one of the bottom teams. Was it Nottingham Forest? That's right. They lost 2-0 to Nottingham Forest ah, yes. in November. So, yeah. And so, like, w- w- when you say, like, the team which is third in the Premier League, two points off top, lost to Nottingham Forest, like, mostly you'd expect, you know, that's a bit of a rogue result. Maybe they're a bit unlucky and, and and such, but I think in Willa's case, like I would say, this is almost an expected result. Like I'm not surprised that it's actually Nottingham Forest they lost to, as opposed to an Arsenal Manchester City. So I think that's my that's my ultimate point is that these uh, basically Emery is more prone to these results, which at a big club will you know cost you even further. Um, so yeah, I guess that's that's the the broader discussion about him. But yeah, in in the current context, at Aston Villa in this job, what he's doing, I definitely agree. He's one of the top managers uh, in the Premier League and and in Europe. But anyway, let's move on now to our players. Uh, we've got a well, I I'd put down a few, but then Alex rudely removed the likes of Leon Bailey and John McGinn. So I'm just gonna gonna give them a quick shout out because i think they've been doing really well but i guess the, the definitely the standout star so far has been ollie watkins you know, we touched up on him briefly uh, a, a very very well-rounded striker um not necessarily you know just like a poacher nine he makes great runs into channels very intelligent off the ball a serious threat in behind so dangerous on counters of course and even as as Varun described, like tactically, in subtle possession, he's really useful in that fluid attack to move into channels and and you know basically pose problems to the opposition defense. Uh, and yeah, well-rounded, technically good on the ball, can link up, uh, can play you know the key pass, and of course, uh, good, very good in front of goal, especially when he's confident. He's he's really really clinical. So he's got eight goals and six assists in the Premier League already. Uh, as we record this, and yeah, he's he's been one of my favorite strikers to watch uh, this season. Uh, just as I said, it's really well rounded. I think Alex has got something to add on him as yes. well. Yes, it's a it's a question. This is again a little question to see which one of you has been following your villain knowledge. Um, so, uh, it, this might be very short if you actually know the answer. Uh, Emery, when he arrived, um, one of the first things he did was sit down with Watkins because he didn't like. He, he wanted to improve Watkins' movement. And something he wanted to change was how Watkins con- consistently moved away from goal with his runs. Like I think he made runs out to into out. And Emery wanted to change that and just generally improve his movement. So he got him into video analysis, which is something that Watkins does to this day very often. And he works one-to-one with a coach. Who are the two strikers that... Okay, you name one of the two strikers that Emery showed Watkins describing them as having perfect movement. Can you like give us some sort of context? Like, are they active Premier League strikers or just historical? What's, what's like what's the uh, sample? I'm, I'm gonna. Uh, my only clue will be, um, it, th- the biggest link would be to Unai Emery. 
Because these are people he's worked with. I'm saying the biggest link to it is the biggest link to Unai Emery. All right, I'm going to guess Edinson Cavani because I think he worked with him at PSG. That is one of them. Baron, could you guess the other? And it is a lot more rogue, to be fair. I, I will say he worked, Emery has worked with this other one as well. So I don't have an answer. But the moment you said this question, right, I was reminded of David Moyes showing Rio Ferdinand videos of Jaggi Elka. <laughs> 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 so I thought, I mean, if that's the kind of answer you're going for, but okay, uh, let me think. Come do you, do you want to give him a hint of like the club he might have worked? No, I think no. it, was, it was in Spain, I think. That's okay. not Spain is not a club, though. He's mm-hmm. coached like half the clubs in Spain. <laughs> yeah, it was up it was Sevilla or uh, Villarreal. No, right. no, just, just say it. All uh, right. Can go? I guess this? Yeah, you go guess on, it. Nah, I'm not. Wait, actually, I need to check the timeline. El, El Naziri? Nah. If if it's your N Naziri movement, then yeah, he actually, needs to. Yeah. No, he <laughs> wouldn't be moving. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, just trying to think yeah. of Sevilla Valencia kind of strikers. Uh, okay, I'm gonna. Oh, I, I think this striker no, peaks very late in his career. Nah, I. Mm, you know, tell us, because uh, I, I. Okay, wait. I'll guess. Screw it. But I don't think Emery worked with him. But Jose Luis Morales? No. Um, it was, yeah, Edison Cavani, who Emery describes as a perfect movement, and Carlos Baca. Those ah, are the two, yes. two ah, players that um, okay. yeah, Emery asked Watkins to study uh, as soon as he arrived. And That's now a, a year character. later, look how well he's doing. But, but where, where was it at Sevilla he was with Baca? I, I, th- I guess so, yeah. This is the thing, because I think of Baca at Villarreal. Ah, yeah, he, he, he was, no, I think it's both. So he was... Uh, Baka was Sevilla 2013 to 15, so that's Emery tenure. Oh, and yeah. And Villarreal 18 to 21, so at both clubs. There you so, go. Yeah, there you go. And yeah, nice. Baka just won a title in Colombia, by the way. Only you, but no. Only you, said that as well. Anyway, that rounds us off for Oli Watkins, I think. Uh, Alex, why don't you tell us about Musa Diaby now, a very, very fun player as well. Yeah, very fun player. It feels a bit odd to talk about him because he's actually not starting super often at the moment because Leon Bailey's in such red-hot form. But um, Diaby, I think there were concerns when he arrived. Like, oh, he's had a really good year at Bayer Leverkusen, especially with his link-up with uh, Jeremy Fringpong. Is he going to be able to play at uh, Aston Villa? And I really like the way Emery has used him. He, as we said throughout the podcast, he's used him in that front two with Watkins. And like Diaby's job is kind of to just, like, drop into little pockets between the midfield and defensive lines of the opposition, turn and go at goal. Uh, it's a slightly different role, I'd say, than what he had at Leverkusen. Well, I think he was operating, even though he would come inside as Jeremy Fringpom burst down the wing, he'd, he was a little wider. This is a lot more, like rather than coming from out wide inside, it's a lot more alongside Watkins to drop wide and then turn into turn from inside the pockets. But yeah, he's um he's had a, a very good uh, start. I think, like you said, Bailey's kind of taken his spot now. But uh, he, 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 even then, like I think Diaby has got was it three goals, four assists, and that's from a, like an XG that's pretty close as well, like around six point eight, six point seven, um, non-post goals and assists. So yeah, really strong start. Hope we see more of him. Because, um, yeah, I think he's starting basically all of Villa's first games. It's the last two he hasn't. Yeah, and of course, as you say, Bailey in red hot form to say they've got two, you know, very similar players who can play that role very well. So, a good problem to have, I suppose. But uh, I guess uh, the final player we should touch on is perhaps the one which maybe divided opinion the most. Uh, Pau Torres, uh, of course, Emery brought him in from Villarreal, as we said earlier. He's worked with him before. But there were questions about how he might cope with this approach, with this high-line defensive approach in the Premier League. So, what have you made of him so far, Varun? I mean, I've always, I mean, admired the player. There was a time, I think it was under Solskjaer, when we were linked to Pau Torres. And at that time, I didn't think it made sense because we had Harry Maguire on the left. And... He was doing well. Maguire is doing quite well. So I was like, why? Why get a left center back uh, anyway? And even if we uh, didn't have Maguire, my one reservation was, is he good in duels? Is he good aerially? 
which I still don't think he is great at, but I think he gets around it. Like if you see his aerial win percentage in the last three years, it's it's all in the fifties, fifty one, fifty two, fifty three. So it's not like he was doing great on that accord in Villarreal as well, and he's not doing great now as well. It's just fifty one percent, and it's in the bottom thirty percentile in the Premier League. But I think it doesn't come into action that often uh, because of the high line. And what he brings in possession especially is amazing. He's very progressive. He can carry the ball out when required. And he's key to making that back three to happen. They are able to push Digne forward because Spouteris gets out like a left center back, almost like a half full back. And then from those angles, he can find a lot of people. He can find someone on the flank. The attacking half space, you know, narrow winger that, uh, that they have, like someone like Magin or someone like Luis or Kamara or just, you know, recycle it back as well. So very, very strong in possession and out of possession. I think he's been doing quite well to mitigate some of his gaps. Um, I still think he's not the best defensively. But then in this system, um, I think it's it's making a lot of sense. And he's been one of the good performers uh, under Emery. Yeah, I agree. I think, as you say, like maybe in terms of like physical qualities, like, you know, his, his duels and his sort of like turn and acceleration to sort of basically recovery pace, he isn't necessarily the best. But he's quite intelligent, you know, very good at sort of maintaining that high line. So, and of course, as you say, exceptional in possession. So, yeah. Uh, it's it's a it's a fair enough trade off uh, for a side like Villa to make, um, and clearly they're getting good rewards for it. So, a good piece of business at the end of the day there too. And as always, I guess let's wrap up our episode with predictions. So obviously we'll g- ask you guys for their position in the Premier League. How do you think they'll fare in the UEFA Europa Conference League, where they have booked a spot in the knockouts from the round of sixteen? And how and your bonus if you want to throw in any uh, cup stuff as well, uh, feel free. Who wants to go first? This time, Alex goes first. Okay. Um, I think Villa will. I don't think I'm, I'm unsure they'll get Champions League. I feel like there's a team every year around this point in the season who's in the top four, and we go, "Oh my god, they're actually like Man United are doing so bad because they're always doing so bad every single year." Um, like oh, you know, it's really in danger this spot. But I think the top four is gonna probably end up being nailed on. So I think Villa will get like fifth or sixth. And in the cups, I mean, <laughs> I think they're the favourite uh for the Conference League. If we're being honest, so I'd be shocked if they don't win that. Actually, um, yeah, and then well, the FA Cup as well. People go semi final, semi final FA Cup, win Conference League, and they get fifth. Yeah, and fifth might be a Champions League spot, right? For England? Actually, yeah, good point. They'll get sixth. Not anymore. Uh, I think after. Oh, yeah, thanks everyone. to Manchester United. Oh, yeah. United <laughs> and yeah, the, the, yeah, the, uh, yeah the, the English coefficient has been bottled. Neil will know a lot about that since he follows the Dutch coefficient. Yeah, that's been even bottled worse for us. But anyway, um, Warren, do you want to go? I'll go. Um, before I go, guess where Aston Villa's wage bill ranks in the Premier League for this season? Ninth. Eleventh. Um, the answer is sixth. Wow! Really? Yeah. United. Sixth. United Wait, City. Which of the? I'll tell. I'll tell them. United City, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, Aston Villa. <laughs> Yeah, the Tottenham are broke. Chelsea, <laughs> Chelsea are horrible, by the way. Was that a full, did you say fourth or fifth ice wage budget there? Yeah, they're That's... fourth, and they were, I think, second or first last year, but it's That's reduced now. So, so, so it's a side point, but that, the owners have absolutely destroyed that football team. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, that is, yeah. So, I mean, Villa are sixth, um, and the Opta predictions has them at third. I uh, think... Hold on, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Just, uh, is that including Coutinho's wages? Because I imagine that was yes, that's pretty, a loan, so... right? So that could be. Oh, so Villa are actually ninth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth. Yeah, like if 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 you remove that, then they're no, going no, no, to no, let, let me tell you. Let me tell you. I'll remove it. No, uh, Coutinho. 
Oh, something. you can wait. You're on a website. You can manually remove it. No, no, yeah, I'm just doing the math in my head. He's, he's, oh. he's, he, <laughs> I, I okay, have. You know Why you do that? I'll give my predictions. Yeah. Okay. Do um, here are my predictions. Uh, I'm first gonna go with a hot take. Uh, they're not gonna win the Europa Conference League. And Ooh. the reason behind that is, I've just looked at all the teams in the Europa Conference League knockouts, and given what we talked about their style of play and everything, they're gonna need to be fairly lucky in the draw. to come up against um, teams that work well for them there's a lot of teams who i think could pose pose problems to them with their approach and prime example i'd say is like a molde uh, i think villa would hate to play molde um, so you know like while in the europa league they got you know your manchester uniteds and and that sort of arsenals and everything they're not going to get those in the conference league so that's why i think they won't win the conference league uh, the pre- the fa cup on the other hand is a, a better place so i'm going to say Yeah, I'm going to agree with you. At least semi-final, or yeah, I'll say like sort of a title challenge in the FA Cup, if I may. Um, and of course, the Premier League is a tough one, which I have to think about. So they're definitely not a top three team, even though they're third right now. The question is, can they get top four, top five? Um, and I would say they can get fifth. So yeah, I'm gonna place them fifth in the Premier League. So that is my predictions done. Take it yeah. away, Varun. I am ready with mine. Uh, I'm actually going to be a bit positive. Also, Wait, by the way, did, did I checked on the Coutinho. Yeah, yeah. I checked that they go below Tottenham if you take out Coutinho. So they're still seventh though. Yeah. Because the next one, West Ham, is a bit far off. West Ham and Newcastle. Wait, West Ham. Yeah, and then Newcastle. <laughs> wow. Something I think West Ham overloaded a lot with the Edson Alvarez, Kudus, um, those kind of buys. They they paid them good wages. Perhaps too good. Uh, but yeah, anyway, uh, your predictions. Predictions. Uh, I'm going to go Villa fourth. Um, Ooh, ahead of I, whom? Honest, that is a tough one. City <laughs> and Arsenal are top two, and. Liverpool, Tottenham, one of them make it in the top four, and Villa passes the other. My guess right now is Liverpool make top four, and Villa leapfrog Tottenham. Fair, and fair. Newcastle and Manchester United don't catch up. Yeah. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. So yeah, I think I'll go with them for fourth. I am going to give them a win for Conference League. I agree with you that they'll struggle against teams like Molde, but they'll just come up with somehow one nil kind of wins. And I think their attacking dynamics, um, especially their high press dynamics, might get a little better, or Emery might try to be a little more expansive against teams like you know Molde. Um, I think they can go far in the Conference League. I'm gonna give them a win in the Conference League, and as you guys said, I'm gonna give them a semi-final in FA Cup. So all three pretty positive. I I guess I'm big on Emery. So I think that rounds us off for this episode. Thank you very much, as always, guys, for joining me for this one. And of course, a big thanks to all our listeners. If you liked what we had to say, you can find all of us on Twitter. I'm at Shailath Neel. Uh, Varun runs the at Devils DNA account or at the Devils DNA rather. And Alex is at uh, Euro Expert underscore, where he has been peer pressured to change his profile picture back. Apparently, so, <laughs> not well yes. done on that, Alex. Um, And of course, you can find uh, all the Get Football accounts. If you go to at Get Football EU, you'll find in the bio the links to all the country and league-specific accounts where we cover football around uh, around the world and especially Europe. And you can stay updated there with all the news, analysis, opinions, videos from the top leagues and the top competitions. So you can find all of that in the notes or the description of this uh, episode, depending on where you're listening. And if your platform allows it, uh, please do rate the podcast uh, as well if you can. Thank you very much for listening again, and we'll catch you on the next one. Take care until then. Bye bye.